Hello, everyone, and welcome to What's Wrong with the Podcast. Today, we're delighted to be speaking with Duncan Baker Brown. Duncan is the director in charge of design innovation at BBM Architects, a chartered architect, author, and senior lecturer at University of Brighton. Duncan has practiced research and thought around issues of sustainable design, the circular economy, and closed loop systems for over 25 years. In practice since 1983, Duncan co founded BBM with Ian McKay in 1993. In that time, Duncan has played a pivotal role in defining the creative direction of the practice whilst maintaining teaching links with the University of Brighton School of Architecture. Duncan has taught at both undergraduate and postgraduate levels since 1994, recently running an undergraduate design studio at the School of Architecture and Design, as well as coordinating undergraduate technology and professional practices modules. His research practice informs his teaching and vice versa. Duncan, welcome. Hello, thank you for inviting me to this podcast. I'm really excited about taking part. It's such a treat to have you. We're a huge fan of your work and you know we've been collaborating on many things too, but please tell us about yourself. Okay, um, well, I'm an architect uh, and have practiced uh, one way or another as an architect for 30 years. Um, and, uh, but I, I've always been passionate about the environment. In fact, um, in the late uh, 1980s, I almost gave up studying architecture to go and work for Greenpeace. And, uh, but um, I sort of realized I could perhaps be more impactful if I stuck to the built environment and carried those sort of Greenpeace environmental uh, agendas with me. So um, nice. yeah, I, I've, I've worked for various architects, but actually since the mid 1990s, have my own practice. Uh, BBM Sustainable Design, and I often say you haven't heard, recently I say you haven't heard of me because I've called the practice BBM Sustainable Design, so but yeah, it's it's been a, amazing to be a practice that's been able to focus on sustainability, and since 1994 we have taught and researched and practiced around issues of sustainable design, and it's been a complete, complete pleasure uh, and a challenge as well, and then over the last few years it's obviously become Bit more front and central around people's debates uh, around the world and of course uh, omnipresent now so uh, it is very exciting being in the place that we've inhabited for quite a long time. Yeah I'm so glad you didn't join Greenpeace not that I, I love the organization <laughs> but we need people like you in the field for sure so I'm so glad you carry that passion into the field of architecture to reflect on built environment. Well for you I mean I can't remember who said it but someone's just said uh, being involved in sustainability, you feel a bit like the unliked relative that's invited around for Thanksgiving, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, just for Thanksgiving, and then once the turkey's eaten, you're off, and then everybody else is sort of talking about you behind your back. So it's been very <laughs> it's been difficult because, yeah, the knee-jerk reaction is if you're involved in sustainability, your your idea of good design, uh, composition, aesthetics is out the window. It's not that right. at all. I mean, you know, I profoundly believe that. Uh, you, if, if it's ugly and doesn't work very well, it, it's not sustainable because someone's going to want to pull it down pretty quickly. So I'm still in the world of striving for yeah, beautiful things and amazing places. So that's the bottom line. Such a great point. And I think what you said just becomes an excuse for ones that are not practicing sustainability yeah. because, you know, it's an easy way out without having like I think it's the responsibility of true designers and architects to actually explore how you can be both right but it's an easier to just say like oh you know if we have to do xyz then it's not going to look sleek or whatever that means um so yeah and I think um 
it's interesting that you point out the sort of the unliked being the unliked person or the person who's talked uh you know uh behind us because i think that sort of reflects the issues in the industry right why is that the case anyway why is it a subject that makes people uncomfortable i think i you know i you won't hear it so much now uh but up until very recently the whole issue of uh, taking an ethical moral position around your design uh, was frowned on you know i i can remember certain architects uh, involved in uh, projects around the world where the working conditions of the contractors are, are dreadful people are dying on site all that sort of thing or communities that you know ancient communities are being cleared to create sort of a stadium or something and the architects are saying well what's that got to do with me i'm a stadium designer i don't you know i, I that's right. not my responsibility so this idea that we think beyond our project and we think of the impact uh, positive and negative of our project on a place uh, beyond the project uh, right. i think it's relatively new in terms of being taken on by the whole the whole professional the the, the greater part of the profession and i just think you know that's one thing that's obviously covid-19 has presented us this idea of uh you know we've got to create sort of covid proof environments now uh covid is not going away uh, whatever no. some people think we we've got to learn to live with it and uh, i find I, I think it's really interesting when uh, uh you look back on in, in history even your know, medieval times and the tudor times in the england when we had henry the 8th on the throne and queen his uh, daughter elizabeth i yeah, they had huge outbreaks to the plague and they, they did social isol isolation then. You know, they learned how to live with it then. So mm -hmm. we've been there before, but I, I just think we, we now we're in a, it's really exciting place we're in now because I think the majority of people are getting it, are thinking, how can we create beautiful places, beautiful buildings, beautiful things, and it be a positive, have a positive impact on planet Earth? And natural systems how can it nurture natural systems rather you know we don't have to in my opinion we do not have to have lovely things and the the the, the sort of payback for lovely things is destroying something else we do it doesn't have to be like that it is right. at the moment but it does not have to be like that yeah i mean the issue also like in our built environment there are so many stakeholders with such different you know interests of their own and then i think something like covid sort of makes everyone think about the same thing i don't think at least just yet the majority is asking that question that eloquently i think it's but at least there is some questioning and i think there's some acceptance of like well we did wrong i mean clearly our built environment is not designed the way it should be so i think that realization at least is very exciting to sort of see like okay now we can start question reframe the problems what is going on and how can we fix these and it's, it's an well, exciting times i agree in the UK, for example, 75% of our GDP is generated in a square mile. It is the financial district of London. Okay. It's the city of London. That city of London is empty at the moment because, yeah, the, the financial trading can be easily be done uh, from your bedroom. So, you know, we've got millions of square meters of office space, which is hardly being used at the moment. And there's, it, however much our government says, get back to work, get back to your workplace, it's not happening. So yeah. people are realizing we can work in different ways and negotiate space in a different way. And I think it's a huge opportunity now because it was always the same sort of equation that meant, you know, mathematical equation around the economy that meant that big towers 
created financial districts or the other way around financial districts created big towers just to show off a bit of wealth and etc but now that's a sort of redundant proposition but you've got all that stuff built in that one in that place yeah. and we've got these financial districts all around the world now and so the opportunity to consider how they might be reoccupied in a mm. different way is huge so it's yeah. however much we're encouraged to get back to work and do business as usual this isn't business as usual no and you know all those high-rises towers that focus on density like the, the pandemic show that density does not work really and you know to your point yes it wasn't the first pandemic ever but maybe it was the first in our living memory right and unfortunately we don't know history well we don't educate ourselves on it sufficiently so we didn't even understand what the possible implications of this pandemic might be until no. when, like April, end of March? Yeah, maybe, yeah. But now that, you know, we've experienced it and learned it the hard way, COVID, as you said, is not going away. This is not going to be the last pandemic ever. So this, as long as this is in our living memory, I think it holds everyone accountable and people, it's also bad business, right? If you just don't learn from it and try to repeat the same thing. And I also do have faith in Gen Z, more than any other former generations as they question more and hold, I would say, companies a little bit more accountable, especially in terms of like social and environmental responsibility. I agree, completely. I mean, I've been saying to colleagues and colleagues have been saying to me and agree me, I'm not the only one saying this, but in, in the UK, we're just about to get the first, uh, uh, except, so I mean, uh, I'm an academic as well. I teach in the School of Architecture and our first year students arriving, and we are getting them arriving, uh, you know, there's students, there are people within that cohort of students who've been climate striking. So we're, you know, it's the first generation of climate strikers now are actually going into Amazing. further education. Amazing. So they're expecting a level of what we might call climate literacy uh, wow. from from the staff. Uh, so, and uh, in, in many ways, they're better informed than many staff members. I I totally believe that. Yeah. And it also pushes others to be that if the students coming in already are knowing so yeah. much and expecting yeah. to learn more. I think that's very exciting. Do you think like so, this was the, I mean, it's, it's the first time, but you, did you see like, because you've been teaching for a long time now, like an accumulation of interest, uh, you know, in terms of like environmental conversations, like, did you witness that change over time? Um, it looks, you know, when you see those graphs of how global warming's gone, doo -doo 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 -doo, boom, it's like that. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, in terms of, because I've been, I've always mixed practice and teaching. And in the late 90s, yeah. early sort of noughties, we were very busy on bigger sort of master plan, plan projects, visioning and conceptualizing what urban sustainability would be like, systems and what have you. So that was exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and it and it was and it was it was quite a lot of um, interest with students, but it, you know it did peter off again. And it's uh, honestly in the UK, it was a, a program called Blue Planet Two with Sir David Attenborough uh, narrating it. And it was two years ago, and because of that project, everybody suddenly remembered, uh, well, or realised about plastic in our oceans and a knock-on effect mm. from that's been profound. And then last year, nineteen yeah twenty nineteen was the the year that the world declared a climate and ecological emergency basically and you know the statistics are on that are in the UK 90% of people live in local authority regions that have declared but they're not only declared so they want to be net zero carbon within nine years now you know 
Yeah. So um, yeah. the lo local authorities in the UK are charged with the, uh, building housing and schools and things. So suddenly they're all asking huge questions because their political councillors, uh, the politicians, mm. have made this declaration and have an ambition of being net zero carbon. And what I'm finding interesting is I've been invited to take part in workshops for recovery plans for different local authorities, mm. recovering from where we are in COVID-19. And they're not forgetting the climate emergency at all, because like me, they're seeing it as one as one and the same thing. But around Amazing. the world, you know, we've got all sorts of next networks, the C40 cities network around the world of cities, including New York, who are all clubbing together and working together to meet okay. uh, carbon reduction targets. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a billion people around the world that live in regions that have declared a climate and ecological emergency in the last year. So yeah. we are in a totally different, you know, before COVID kicked in, we were in a totally different place because yeah. of um, what our politicians and other people have done. And now we're in this really interesting place where in the UK, we've got a right wing government, a bit like you guys have got. And mm -hmm. they're trying to say, they're trying to say that the climate activists are, you know, there is a terror, yeah, extinction rebellion are a terrorist group. He's trying, oh that's what God. Boris Johnson is trying to say at the moment. <laughs> well, members of Architects Declare, which is the UK, UK Architects Declare, there's Architects Declare around the world. You know, some of those people are members of Extinction Rebellion as well. So we're architects are terrorists now, as well as <laughs> activists. So great. It, it, it I think it's exciting. <laughs> it is exciting. Yeah, I think probably also, you know, there, uh, I read something on like how COVID-19 is not the first pandemic, but it's the first infodemic, like never before such information shared took place during a pandemic, right? And maybe it served well, but also maybe scared a lot more than it should. I don't know. Uh, we still shall see. But in terms of like all everything happening around, you know, climate change and action towards it, I think that all like social media and being digital really helped, um, I guess also like the younger generations because they're way more savvy in it anyway, to yeah. educate themselves, even if they didn't see it in school or through their parents. And I think, and then especially in this topic, I think it worked for the better. I mean, social media maybe has its evils, but I think in this sense, um, we're in a better place because of it, um, especially Completely. when it comes to the environment. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I, I guess uh, I think this is a great um, sort of segue to sort of talk about, I mean, if we if we try to talk about problems in our built environment, I think that's a huge list. Um, but I want to focus on circularity and why it's so important. Um, and I guess if you can give a little bit of context of even like how this conversation started, because I think, uh, you know, we've been talking about sustainability for I don't know a while and like many companies also talk about their sustainability agenda which i don't know if it really is an agenda or a marketing piece and but then as the conversation around circularity started to come about i think there are still many people who don't understand field distance it's almost like climate change right it's just like big terminology and like what does that really mean so what what is it and what does it mean for our built environment okay uh, I'll give you a couple of, of statistics which yeah. get me focused. Uh, to cut to the chase, the built environment is pretty much responsible for half carbon and other negative emissions around the world, 50% of them, one way or another. It also consumes 50% of raw materials harvested and mined annually around the world. It's 
in the UK creates 60% of all the waste that the UK creates. 150, 120 million tonnes of waste that goes to landfill incineration are the, from the construction industry, which has improved that from 200 million tonnes annually oh 10 years ago. 60%, so point, geez. Yeah, 60% of the UK's waste is generated by the construction industry. So that's demolition waste, that's surplus materials that never get used, and that's old materials getting thrown away. The point being that any of these local authority regions or city mayors around the world who are thinking, how do I reduce my ecological, that's the footprint, which is the combined negative footprint of all stuff humans do on the world. They've got to look at food, water, travel, but crucially, the built environment. Mm -hmm. So that's the performance of the existing built environment and the performance of the new built environment. And what we've got to do as humans is reduce drastically reduce our consumption of stuff, whether it's food, water, or raw materials to create buildings. And the way we do that is get away from the linear system that we're, we're in at the moment, where we take materials, we process them into things, use them for moments, throw them away. We're the only organism that works like that on planet Earth. Mm. Everybody, everybody, everything else, other... Uh, from microbes through to elephants and what have you, waste from one ec ecosystem is food for another ecosystem. In the natural world, there's no such thing as waste. In the, what I proffer is that in the world of construction, there's no such thing as waste, there's just stuff in an inconveniently wrong place. So it gets thrown away rather than used. So in the construction industry, you're trying to look at, we're trying to look at changing linear systems into circular ones. And in short, reduce the amount of stuff we consume when we're designing, building, occupying, maintain, maintaining, and throwing away buildings at the end of their life. Never throw them away. So in a circular economy, building, old buildings are material stores or existing buildings are material stores for future buildings. So we're turning all these linear systems into circular ones. Yeah. Let me ask the obvious, I'm going to ask the obvious question here. So because we're using less, we're not throwing away, we're repurposing things. This is already a better economic model as well, which for you know anybody who's in construction or development yeah. should make sense because they're also seeking more profits or they want to spend less. So why wasn't this adopted as a model to begin with? Is it just convenience or somehow they justified it in a different way? Um, well, if you're talking about post Second World War, when we were all encouraged to consume as many fossil fuels as possible, and sure. just looking for ideas to turn fossil fuels into different things, oh, isn't plastic wonderful? Oh, do you know, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, you, your, your guys on Madison Avenue were completely responsible for all of that, <laughs> selling us stuff. Sugar water throw away the throwaway house. I remember banner yeah. ads from like 50s with like throwing away like stuff. Exactly. So, <laughs> Uh, it was that just that model took off and it seemed to work because you got instant huge profits that just were exponentially uh, uh, curved upwards. Um, but unfortunately, there's been a huge payback, which we're all yeah. finding. Nobody is rich enough to avoid the problem. That's the, the thing. Yeah. You know, the richest per people in the USA cannot avoid fires, famine, whatever. It's it's the flood. It's what you know. You've got. You've got winds on one side of your, your country at the moment and fire on the other. It's, it, you can't avoid it, however rich you are. Yeah. So my point is that if you reduce the need for new raw materials, you reduce the burden on the natural environment to provide that. So you leave it alone. You don't burn down for forests. You don't chop down forests to get to limestone or copper or any of them 
materials we need. We're in a world at the moment where this, I don't know how we know this, but as statistics, there's more copper above ground than below ground. But the other statistic, which most people get their head around, is that it, you get more gold out of a ton of iPhones than you get out of a ton of the best gold ore from South Africa. So stop mining, stop sending those poor people down into those holes uh, to find that material. It's, it's all above ground now. And I came, yeah. came up with this phrase when I wrote my book on this called the Reuse Atlas. Uh, the phrase I came up with was mining the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene being the current geological epoch we're in, the man-made, human-made layer of stuff that wraps planet Earth, whether that's plastic in our oceans or cities or uh, airborne pollution, whatever. Yeah. Reuse the stuff that's already been mined and processed. And I'm working with people who are doing that in all sorts of industries now. And the point is, they're making money out of doing this. Yes. I mean, we've only behaved in a completely linear way. Uh, you know, around the world, it's for decades in some places, and no more than in the UK, we sort of invented it. it you know, it's, and that's only, I've, I've got uh, friends who are experts in waste, and apparently the sort of proper the waste as we know it now first happened in the UK in about 1861. We basically mm. got so rich on plundering our empire for resources that we didn't pay for uh, that we could start throwing things away and it's almost just to show off that we could and um, oh my God. so it, it's since then really but it's really since the second world the end of the second world war but um, we don't need to be like that now and yeah. um, if you know with our buildings it's I'm working with people who can deconstruct rather than demolish deconstruct slowly buildings from any era right up to brand new buildings so for example, at the moment, part of the World Trade Center in Brussels, it's only the building's only 20 years old, a typical financial district proposition. The buildings get stripped out every five years anyway because they want to rebrand. Yeah. And every 25 years, the external facade, and in fact, the whole building might be taken down. Now, I've got colleagues, uh, a company called Rota DC, um, who are de deconstructing the facade and interiors for tower blocks in in one in this desk uh, the world trade center in brussels they're not just deconstructing it they're cleaning up the material and selling it on to other people for new projects it's happening on a bigger scale even last autumn in the uk there was a, a white paper presented to parliament which proffered this idea of um an, a materials exchange a big resource exchange a digital database so if you've got a building coming down in one part of london uh, we know everyone knows about it and you can use that part of the supply chain for another building. Amazing. And, uh, it, it's, um, it's doable, but it needs the digital and physical infrastructure to support it. So at the moment, it's really, it, we're at the stage where it's pathfinder projects who are, are doing this. But there's networks, there's a circular city network, including New York at the moment, um, that are looking at these ideas. And there are, the, when you look at the people who are actually doing it, they just they plug into existing systems. You know, there's a way, there's a reason that Amazon can get a next day delivery in anywhere in India is because right. they plug into existing networks. Right. And that's in a way all we need to do. I think to your point, like in addition to the need for the infrastructure, I think it also ties into awareness, right? Like I, yeah. the, the, one of the main reasons why we even do these panels and podcasts is that in our studio, we were kind of after a moment, we're like, well, there's really no solution to any problem if the end user is not educated or aware, right? And I think built environments, ironically, even though we spend so much time in them or around it, we don't know much as users, right? Like even in like the fashion industry now, we're like 
questioning a little bit more what we're wearing. Like, it, was this like fair trade? Is this like organic materials? Is it produced from waste? Like whatever that is, we see more and more brands popping up to sort of, yeah. um, I guess, um, now also, I guess, with the general generational changes of expectations or demands from brands, we see more of that in, in that industry. Um, but I think we still don't have, I mean, when we're renting an apartment or renting an office space or buying a space, we're more like, does it have a balcony or a backyard? Does it get sunlight? Yeah. Like the basic questions, we don't question materiality. We don't question construction process. We just look at the pricing and a few other things. And that's the decision making factor. Right. And I think the more and more, which is why I also appreciate that you, you know, didn't join Greenpeace and decided to be an architect. I think the more and more we try to educate people and make them aware of this, I think there will also be a factor of supply demand. Like there won't be a way to, another way to uh, build because people will demand that and that, that will have to be realized. Um, so I think, uh, and we see that awareness also growing. Um, I'm wondering, we talked about social media and how that transparency sort of helps yeah. in terms of like the conversations around climate change. How can that transparency be, I guess, implemented into built environment or construction industry to sort of make people hyper aware of what's going on so that they demand more from um, any construction that is coming up? Well, it, start, it starts, as you, you've alluded to, with the education of the, of the people who are in the, built, in the industry that creates the built environment. I really think it does. I, and it's a, but at the same time, sorry, yeah, and, uh, it's also that you know, end, end users are demanding yeah. uh, these things. However, I think with the built environment, it, it is, you've explained it really well, I think it is more difficult to, for most people who are not in the construction or design industry to actually understand begin to get an understanding um, of how it, it is more beneficial to use one type of material than another. But it, yeah. it, is, about, it is about the sort of fair trade idea of, of uh, the supply chain. So I think if you compare it with food, um, it, it's a good comparison. So if you think in terms of the ingredients for a meal being organic and from fair trade sources um, and the sort of food miles associated, or sorry, air miles associated with food, you just treat the construction of the building in the same way in terms of the, the supply chain. And that's one thing that I think the industry is only just beginning to get its head around with. Uh, and that is being interested as a designer about the source of the ingredients that make your thing. Yeah. I think Why those analogies matter? really help because I think, yeah. you know, uh, which maybe architecture suffers from this a bit too. Uh, when the language is not that accessible, I think then you're stopped being relatable and when you're not relatable people don't question or understand what you're doing like to your point um people don't understand the materiality or neither no. construction or built environment and how everything comes to play maybe but in food we all have a much better understanding just because yeah. it is a common thread in all of our lives maybe similar with like clothing even though it was hugely, you know, maybe still like environmentally irresponsible, but at least there's much more, I, I would say like a, a zoomed in look into it with all the new brands that are coming out. They don't have the luxury to be, you know, how things used to be. Um, and I, I think to that point, having educators like you also really matters because people both need to understand what's really going on, but also 
that like communication, like the book you wrote, I think those type of like accessible information, not throwing out like high terminologies out there and um, making a complex topic even more complex for people. Um, just, you know, explain things like with food or with other things that is much yeah. more easy to just comprehend and adopt, I think, and not forget. Um, so in terms of like, I guess, uh, what are the, the sort of like overall approach that has to change it it seems like so we talked about infrastructure it's also the awareness education and that calls for some level of access or interest as you said um it's for designers well, also, to by the way there, there are just so many examples of good practice now so you know if if uh, you're, you're in new york you know the empire state building had was uh had replacement windows a couple of years ago installed they were ma they were manufactured on site yeah so there was a factory set up on site within the building that created the windows so you know that that's just the sort of thing that uh, when you're trying to reduce the carbon and ecological footprint uh, in the construction it's exactly the sort of thing you need to do they weren't made in china and flight blown over or put in a, a ship so, you know, there's, there are things, if you care to look at them, that are being done all the time, that are good practice. Yeah. And, um, you know, from a point of view of being an architect designing buildings, if you're designing new buildings, it is relatively straightforward to design them so they can be deconstructed one day. Therefore, uh, you can be quite uh, improperly preoccupied with eliminating toxic materials, plastic, anything that's going to off-gas and create an a bad inter interior uh, air air quality, but at the same time, when you're putting bolting, uh, when you're putting the building together, try not to stick it together. Try to bolt it together, in effect, or yeah. you know, make sure that it, uh, you know if you're using masonry for not very high buildings, you can use a lime-based ma masonry instead of a cement-based masonry. There are modern mortars that are lime-based, which fall away from the bricks when you when you take the building down. So, you know, a lot of things in terms of a principle, we only need to look about look back to the end of the 19th century to see how to, to build really. And um, just to try and think of a building as a collection of components that are bolted together rather than stuck together and try not to pour too much concrete on site because when it becomes a sort of loose plastic monolith, yeah. <laughs> it's only ever gonna be rubble one day. What you said in terms of how we used to build, right? Like if we look back into history and we always talk about not knowing our history enough, which also, yeah, yeah. you know, reflected as a huge problem during a pandemic. Uh, how did we build? How we did we build more sustainable back then even uh, without knowing this much data on so many things? Yeah, I think, I think uh, you know, to, to cut it short, basically, we would use more normally locally sourced materials. So whatever, so you know, whatever was the local stone, clay, earth, whatever, plus timber, whatever you had, that's what you were using. And you put it, I mean, the way it was put together was uh, with, if it was glues, they were very, then they weren't that sticky. So it was easy to pull things apart or it was carefully jointed, bolted, screwed, whatever. But it, you know, as a lot of buildings that are hundreds of years old, that are still with us. And one of the reasons they're with us is because they're adaptable. Mm. And it literally, like I said, it's in, in the UK, it's from, two, it's from 1910 onwards with, that cement started to be introduced into mortar. Uh, so the bricks started to get stuck together and the mortar stronger than the bricks themselves. 
I mean, it's interesting. Uh, New York was the world apart in a way because you you went you went crazy for tall built tall skyscrapers really quickly. But if you look at the way they're built, they're you know, a lot of those are bolted together, steel steel frames bolted together. So the original yeah. ones. So you know, one day they can be pulled apart again. So um, yeah, I, I I think there's a lot we can learn because you know, um, without it being a lecture on the vernacular materials, local materials actually weather better in the environment that they're, uh, they're, they were created in. So even timber, if you've got timber growing, you know, if your environment is humid and you've got timber growing in that environment, it's used to that environment. And it even, so when it's um, cut down and used, it's right. okay. So what happens in the UK is we've got a humid environment, but we get a lot of softwood timber from a cold, you know, northern Europe, from Finland and Sweden and Norway, totally different environment. And this softwood does not like being in our environment. So we have to treat it with lots of chemicals so it doesn't rot. Just simple things like that. But you also get a sense, you know, with a local palette of materials creates a sense of place and what have you. And, yeah. and that's an added benefit. But um, broadly speaking, buildings were always just sort of bolted together. And, uh, and it's only in the sort of mid to late 20th century that they've been stuck together and it's a problem we have actually is because we're quite understandably in the world of low energy design in terms of not much energy used in use you've got you pre we're preoccupied with air tightness so we don't mm. have leaky buildings but there are ways of designing airtight buildings without using lots of expanded foam you know the sort of spray foam you can use to right. fill in cracks and stuff you talk to rotor and people i know who are in the world of deconstruction as soon as they see that stuff that that's the their nemesis you know because mm. it seems that stuff sticking bits together is the opposite of what they need to do and i you know i I've, I've um upset the passive house community in the past because the passive house is this sort of uh, european movement towards zero energy and uh, use um yeah. buildings and uh, so many people who try and build to those standards in the uk just use a lot of that expanded foam to fill in all the cracks to get their air tightness levels you don't actually need to if you know what you're doing, but too many people don't really know what they're doing. So they, they're sticking exactly. these buildings together. Now, if they're not stuck together, uh, I, you know, I, as I said, I know people that can deconstruct buildings from any era. And therefore, those buildings are a material store. And yeah. what, we, what we've got to do, though, is make it common practice. I'm working on research projects at the moment where we're putting together the, the output of the project's going to be a three-year project. going to be a directory of over 1,500 suppliers across six countries in northern europe who are deconstructing buildings but crucially uh reusing those elements in new buildings or you know uh, extending uh, yeah. existing buildings and so, near site in a local radius yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. and there's projects that our practice have been involved to uh, been asked to be involved with since lockdown actually so for example college campuses in, in the in the area where they want to they're having to consolidate in terms of size for whatever reason. So mm -hmm. they want that uh, we've been asked to do an audit on some existing buildings they want to deconstruct or they, they wanted to demolish. We're going to deconstruct them. And then we're designing new buildings on the campus using those materials that we've just Amazing. audited and selected. So we're getting clients asking us to do this. Amazing. So that's it. That's so, and really I know, great to hear. Yeah, so, and I know, uh, speaking to planners in the city of London, um, when we did a workshop around a circular economy with them, they, they were already getting early stage planning applications and inquiries from developers saying, we own that tower, we want to take it down, deconstruct it, and we'll use the material to create the new tower. 
So it's out there as an idea. People have seen it as a valid idea. Um, a lot of good practice is in the Netherlands, in, in Holland yeah. and the Netherlands. And, uh, you know, for example, in Amsterdam, the AMB AMRO Bank, which is the, the Dutch national bank, mm -hmm. they've built an 18 million euro circle. They call it the circle pavilion, not circular pavilion, but the circle pavilion. And that's designed around circular economy principles. So um, that building is a material bank for the future. It creates its own energy, purifies its own water, even the cafes using local, locally grown organic food, et cetera, et cetera. Everything is circular. The insulation is made out of denim from employees' old jeans. And um, so they're doing it all correctly. And the, the client who's a, you know, he's a, he's a banker. He said the AMB AMRO Bank's got a portfolio of building uh, uh, investment in buildings around the world to the tune of 600 billion euros. And he says, so obviously we're a financial bank, but he said, we're now a materials bank as well. So he's using the language of the circular economy. And he's saying, basically, you know, if you create this building and it's got a 25 year lifespan in terms of a financial plan an investment, he said at the moment, at the end of it, you throw it away. It's a, a, um, it's a material and, and financial deficit. Well, our buildings from now on are going to be a material asset yeah. and a financial asset to us. So our buildings are an asset as if they, if they need to come down or, or be refurbished or whatever, it won't be just, a, it won't be a, as far as the financial plans concerned, it won't be a loss. It will be a gain. I, so it, it makes a lot of sense financially. <laughs> that, that's why I, that, that was my like, I guess, obvious question in the beginning. It already makes so much sense, but why is it like that it, it took some time to, I guess, be picked up. And I think, you know, I find Europe in general uh, much more ahead of the game. Uh, I think, you know, there is uh, past followers in the United States, but I don't think we're still there yet. And, you know, when we look at um, Eastern Europe or Middle East, there's still a lot that needs to be done. But to highlight some of the things that you said, what I guess you mentioned, like, if people know what they're doing, right? I think that's a very, very important line yeah. because the built environment has, or the construction industry has so many stakeholders. I mean, architects are not even in control of their own medium, right? We can do a design, yeah. but there's also yeah. um, structural engineers that come into play, MEP, everybody has their own opinion in addition to the client, and then there's a developer. So if one or two parties don't know what's going on or doesn't even know how to execute, that will already cause a problem, right? So yeah. touching upon, I guess, again, on the education, but also looking back on how things were built. I think it's a very unforgiving industry, unfortunately. Like if, you know, in the tech industry, a prototype can fail and people will be totally understanding of it because it's a prototype, yeah, exactly. yeah, right? Yeah. But the real estate industry, if one thing turned out to be expensive or it didn't work as fast as it should or they thought about, there's something, oh, that doesn't work or that's too expensive. Or, and then suddenly that's like promoted as if yeah. like that doesn't work. And I don't know how we how it became so unforgiving and but the mindset needs to change. I mean, we have to be more like the tech industry and really push for change and lead technology rather than just like following on all technologies and try to like yeah. implement things later on. But it actually, the things you're talking about also does not call for groundbreaking innovations. These were done in the past. We just need to change our mindset. This is not it, nothing it new. No, it isn't, but it does sort of take, uh, it does require a, an, the opportunity, which is time actually to reflect. Right. And so to true. Rem perhaps remember or learn. 
And uh, yeah, and but the other, I think the other, the thing with the phrase circular economy is people, it, that people don't know what it means. And so what, but once they do understand what it means, half the time they're thinking, oh, well, I do a bit of that already. Uh, you know, I didn't realize yeah. that was a valuable thing to do. So yeah. I, I think it, I think it, I think the circular economy movement needs a better PR team around it, <laughs> personally. So um, uh, I'm up for helping, but um, yes, and all the people uh, who are planning on joining Greenpeace, join join marketing and well, exactly. PR companies. Yeah, yeah, please. We just need. I mean, to be a, yeah. So um, so that's 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 one one thing. But uh, I am sort of quite hopeful because um, you know what you can you know we we can say I, I completely agree. The sort of R and D in the built environment is negligible in respect because most of it is so commercially driven and it's. It's yeah. a very simple commercial uh, exercise, and uh, if you're not if you're not de dealing with it in the normal way, it's not going to happen. However, I again, large financial institutions are taking the circular economy really interesting and looking at it because they can see how they can make more money at it. Because we're proffering new 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 um, sort of uh, ownership or not ownership models. The idea of leasing things you can lease light now, lease lux. So instead of owning you know, in Schiphol Airport, which is Amsterdam's airport, all the light fittings there are still owned by Philips, who hmm. are the lighting provider. Now, what's the point with that? Well, it means the manufacturer has responsibility for the artifact, the product, if right. it's and it, at its end of life. Now, at the moment, you and I have the responsibility for changing light bulbs and throwing them away, right? Or trying to recycle them or not. And we're just like, oh, who knows if it's going to happen? If you make the manufacturer responsible for their product at the end, at its end of life, point of end of life. It would design that product in a different way, so it's easier to deal with at the end of its life. So and that true. Means that, and that means designing it for disassembly, and you end up it, it with Philips will end up with millions of tons of lighting components, and that's a resource. Yeah, so they will know what to like, do with it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, because they put the things together. So, with that in mind, these different leasing models are really quite exciting because, like I said, if the owner of Schiphol Airport they lease the lux. That's the, con that's the contract they have with Philips. I want that lux level on that surface guaranteed. If it's not mm. like that, you've co contravened the con contract. And I don't want to know about maintenance or new fittings. You deal with that. And, that may and you, can, you can lease jeans. There are companies, all sorts of think products now that can be leased. I know that Arabs, who are an international engineering company, uh, they're looking at uh, the idea of... Um, applying the circular economy to facades because all the tall buildings that we all know the facades uh you know the neoprene joints between glazed mm -hmm. uh glazed uh, glazing units that's the weak point that's the thing that only mm. lasts 15 years the glass lasts forever so um they're looking at ways in which uh, a facade can be deconstructable and easily uh maintained and therefore in effect leased so the facade companies lease amazing the facade. i did a i I organized a symposium last year where I got over, uh, over 50 people from mainly Northern Europe to talk about the concept of circular cities. And we got a lot of people from the cities in Netherlands because they're actually imp implementing these ideas. But to do it, to tell a whole story, you're, talk, you're listening to the economists, the lawyers, the politicians, <laughs> the bureaucrats, <laughs> as well as the consultants and the designers. But those first three are the ones making it work because we need right. new contractual obligations and new contracts out there uh, and it's a new financial model it's a new law model as far as law is concerned um, the idea of you know can you imagine being a build, being the landlord of a building where what do you actually own well you only own 
you only own the, la the land actually. <laughs> the land the we own, yes. But we are, I think that's fascinating, yeah. But um, if you're leasing it, that means the supplier, in effect, owns it at the end of its life. And that means it, they won't want, they'll want it to be as easy to deal with as possible. And that might mean make it a material asset rather than something going to landfill. That's very exciting. And it's exciting to hear that these are already taking place, at least in some countries, right? But I think people who already have the infrastructure and the mindset at the place need to build these examples in order for the rest of the world to sort of start adopting them too. I would say in a slightly different way, Pina, I would say that um, it's happening everywhere in a little way. It's not only one or two countries. I think it's been taken up everywhere. It's just, uh, it, you know, there aren't that many examples. I just, I just think, uh, you know, moving, moving forward in a way, if you think about how to, how we're going to have to trans, uh, transform dense urban environments into habitable yeah. spaces. These places that where we they don't need to be 95% office space anymore. They can be other sorts of places. Do we need more? We need more space between buildings or more space between rooms or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, so these places need to be transformed. And it would be dreadful if you just took dynamite to all these spaces and blew them up to create space. What we need is to just be able to deconstruct and adapt the environment and without throwing stuff away but one thing i would say to a hard nosed developer that wants their that wants their triple bottom line sorted out and wants their profit is at the moment in the uk if you're a developer 20 percent of everything you're buying you're throwing away hmm. so at the moment 20 percent of uh well another way of looking at it is in the uk for every five uh six six or seven houses it is now built one house worth of waste go, material goes to waste so it used to be 20%. It's got down to about 15 to 17% now. Now, what sort of, you know, what sort of hard-nosed uh, business person throws away 17% of their money? Exactly. On a deal? Exactly. It, it, yeah, they're, being, they're, they're, not, they're, they're not being as hard-nosed as they think they are at the moment. And all that happens really is that I'm not bad-mouthing quantity surveyors at all, but, you know, when they say how much is a building going to cost, they report on the last buildings that they built and that mm. might not have been a particularly effective or efficient way of building. So, uh, you know, and you get this sort of consensus of reported valuations on how many things, how much things cost. And that's what you respond to. So it's a, it's a, a passive way of coming up with the idea of how much something costs. Now, if you really report every little bit of the value of every component on a building and you actually cost it and you don't throw it away, you design in systems. So is you add, you know, whether it's prefabrication or whatever, um, you're, you're going to reduce, if you say, I mean, I've worked on projects that are zero waste on site and that's actually a big deal. And Perfect, you, yeah. you have to deal with mo your, mo your modularity, prefabrication, all these things. They're a great, you know, and there's reasons why they're, they're good things to invest in. And you end up with zero waste on site. So that actually means for the client, everything she or he bought is on site. It's not in landfill. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, exactly. It, put it like that. Yeah, why it's so just great business. Yeah. Exactly. I think to your point, just like flip the stats and to make it or like change the, do not give like stats on like um, maybe, you know, environmental impact or whatnot, which maybe it's the, still a foreign language to some. But then yeah. when you talk about numbers or like, would you throw like 17% of your money away? You know, I think that making the conversation more relatable, going back to like access, I think 
these like this information is so valuable which is i'm also really glad uh, that you're speaking at many locations and <laughs> doing keynotes this is because it it does sort of help people question their themselves or how they do business yeah, yeah. in a in a way that you know is not um sort of top down or up nose like it's actually like oh I understand now so that really helps yeah. and i'm that's why i'm i we that's how we initially met we listened to one of your talks and then we were just like we have to talk to him more um but i guess this uh, it would be great to also talk about we talked about the top-down needs uh right that has to happen but there is also the bottom-up push and um it's exciting to hear that new generation architects and designers are already so ahead of the game in terms of mindset and even like knowledge on climate change and environment. Um, what would be your advice to them that are gonna push boundaries, try to make progress in an industry that is unfortunately slow in innovation or R&D, but it's ready, really ready, especially after COVID-19 as well to change. What would be your advice to them? I, I would say uh, historically that's correct about the, uh, uh, yeah, recent history, the last say 30 or 40 years, the industry has been ponderous uh, in terms of its response to innovation. But um, now we're in need of sort of a, a every aspect of our life. Uh, we, we're in need of a, a, a working in a different way. And I, most people are in agreement with that. There's not many people who think it's, it's business as usual time now. So there'll be people in powerful positions who will want us to carry on with business as usual. Um, but that's because they've made a lot of money being business as usual, probably. However, I'd say there's other people who are in equally powerful position and positions, and they're like the mayors, the bureaucrats, the people running regions and cities who are ignoring the people at the top in politics and, ignore, and being able to ignore the, uh, uh, the tra traditional um, uh, financiers of projects as well. And they're demanding a new sensibility, a new way of doing things. And um, so I would say if you're a student, just um, you, you're, you know, we're all living through this pandemic at the moment and it's, there are huge opportunities and it'll be what, I mean, I, you know, it'd be really exciting. I'm going to be 56 soon. Last time I looked, I was 21. Congrats. Thank you. But, you know, to be 21 or 20 and in the uh, School of Architectural Design at the moment is the best place to be. There's so many questions that need answering again. And, uh, you know, it's, we're not just in a world where it's, uh, we're going from modernism to deconstruction, deconstructionism, deconstructionism uh, to postmodernism or whatever. That, you know, that's just, that's just the coat on the body of the whole thing. And we, we really need to uh, think fundamentally about how to uh, design uh, places and cities again and how those cities relate to the natural environment. And it's very exciting. And so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of good practice out there. I mean, someone asked me who my hero was the other day. And it, it, for me, it's easy at the moment. It's Greta Thunberg. There's no one else. There's no one else that's giving the message. So true. Yes. I do an exercise with, with, our, with my students where, oh, well, this is actually, I did it last year. I, I've got 50 different samples of materials. Some of them are oil-based, fossil fuel materials. Others are sort of running through to things like mycelium insulation, you know, insulation made out of mushrooms and things like that. And um, I, I hand out these 50 materials and I say to students, right, you've got 10 minutes on your phones. Find, there's the names of the suppliers of these materials. Find out the sustainability credentials of these materials. And um, so basically check if you think it's um, BS or not, you know. 
And right. um, but I did that for quite a few years, and you'd get people just reporting back exactly what it said on the website. I did it last year, and I get and I let them see Greta Thunberg's um, "Our House Is on Fire" to, uh, speech, the one of the first speeches she did. I, I played that first, and then I got them to do it. And honestly, they were so empowered; they they were really critically appraising whatever these websites said about these uh, materials. You know how greener. Uh, polyurethane material was or something it's it's um they were they were different people just with that cl clarity of vision and as i said a, a moment you know earlier in the talk um yeah we've got off we've got a generation of climate climate strikers now around the world all going into university yeah. education now yeah so even better so no, I, I guess the advice is just keep at it and continue yes. to question and continue to strike continue and reflect that into your professions, I guess, whether that's yeah. architecture yeah. or PR. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, that, that's why I thought controversially about three or four years ago, I added the word activist into my sort of job description. And a lot of people were sort of frowning uh, or why are you calling yourself that? But, you know, in... Uh, you know, in the world of architecture at the moment, you've got people who are architects and they're members of various different organizations who are promoting this, the acceptance of the idea of the climate and ecological emergency. And, you know, they're members of Extinction Rebellion as well. And uh, so, you know, and in the UK, our prime minister is trying to designate extreme ex Extinction Rebellion as a terrorist organization. So we've now got architects who are terrorists. <laughs> Or members of a terrorist organization anyway so uh, we had it and actually quite seriously on that point there was an architect an riba royal institute of british Ar uh, architect uh, british architects member who was arrested on waterloo bridge in the middle of london and an extinction rebellion march oh my god 2019. he had to go to court and the architect registration board were wondering if he should be struck off if he's found if he was found to have uh, committed a criminal act and he won his case in court but he also won his case against the ARB because he cited the RIBA code of conduct and the ARB code of conduct professional huh. conduct which basically said you've got to practice in a sustainable way and he basically he just said well I was trying to practice in a sustainable way and and uh, you know sort of march in a peaceful way uh, to allow myself to do this and uh, he, won he was successful. But, you know, Amazing. there was a point where he was going to be criminalized for oh my God. Being, basically being a member of an Extinction Rebellion. So these are really interesting times. It's like the 19, 1960s again, I think, but more so. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's interesting, actually, uh, you know, you're, you're in New York and, uh, you know, I, I, with my students, I, I get them looking at films of, are about Jane Jacobs, um, yeah. you know, because the, the, the guts that that woman had. And, Incredible. Uh, she, she, Cite her all the time. Noticed. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it's been done before. Yes. So be an activist. I think that, that that's how I would that summarize this. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Duncan. This was so inspirational and just satisfying to like hear these things and hear these exciting things that are happening also. Do you want to add anything on something that you're currently working on? Another new book maybe that is coming out? Uh, Funny you should mention that, but um, <laughs> I just happen to have it here, my old book. That yes, one. three years yeah. atlas. I've just, the RIBA phoned me up last week, they're my publishers, and they said, very funny, Duncan, that book's three years old, and it's really selling a lot at the moment, so we wanted a second edition. I said, oh, well, maybe it's moments come. 
Um, but yeah, I'm also, the book I want to write and I'm going to look at doing it next year is around the definition of this idea of circular cities. So, you know, for me, cities are where it's all happening. Uh, mayors of cities can take control of a region and ignore uh, presidents or prime ministers or whatever and get on with stuff. And it's the cities where, I, where we have hope, I think. And they're also where there's a lot of work needs to be done uh, because of COVID. But um, the idea of a circular city, because cities attract so much stuff, people and stuff all come to cities. And it's the idea of turning those linear systems into circular ones and having... Mm organized three or four years of symposia around this uh this um these ideas i've met so many amazing people who are dealing with the politics behind it the finance behind it the legislation required and the design of the digital and physical systems required that i want to write a book about it so that that's next year's book um, i am working on projects at the moment um amazing projects where uh, in short, if there's an existing building, we're reusing or recycling the building on site, but other materials, we're making materials on site for buildings. Um, and in one, one building we're going to do next year for, um, there's an opera house in the, in the countryside in, in the southeast of England called Glyndebourne Opera House. It's one of the best opera houses in the world, but it's in a rural environment. So lots of people go there. There's a big carbon footprint associated with getting there. You know, people even arrive on helicopters and stuff. But we're, we're doing a new building with them that's made out of waste streams from the site and other materials on site. It's all site-based materials, including uh, insulation made out of mycelium, which is mushroom roots. And it's being grown on site in shipping containers. And the food that it eats is just grass clippings from the lawns. So, but we're also making tiles, uh, well, in effect, concrete tiles, but the concrete is being made out of oyster shells uh, that we're collecting on site as well. And we're making bricks out of cork from cork bottles from the champagne and wine bottles that are used on site. And we're using the glass as well. So oh, that's interesting. So exciting. Yeah, I can't and wait. By the way, built, built for normal money, not, not an expensive way of doing it. Just understanding you can do it. So glad that you pointed that out. And we can't wait for the new book to come out too. I think, you Thank know, you. you're one of your responsibility as an activist and an architect <laughs> with a heart of a Greenpeace member. Um, we need to hear more from you always. So I'm so glad you're working on that and we really look forward to it. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. You, you, you and your colleagues are doing amazing work yourselves as well as promoting other people's work so and that's what you know you're such a good example you're you're doing what we all need to do which is to do it ourselves but promote other people thank you so much well i mean we we're tackling with huge and many problems we can't do it alone so we all need to no, collaborate right. but thank yeah. you so so much okay thank you cheers man that is this week's episode of what's wrong with the podcast Make sure to visit our website, podcast.whatswrongwith.xyz, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. You can now also watch our podcast on YouTube. Link in the description below. If you found value in this show, we would appreciate if you could rate us and leave a review, or you can simply tell your friends about the show. For more details on our guests, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Links can be found in the episode description. Don't forget to join us next week. Thank you for listening.